If we can't protect them, we have to protect them. Hi, my name is Jamie Roberts. And I'm Robert Landrum. Welcome to Running Scared. The podcast where we review the movies that had you running away but coming back for more. Rob, what are we looking at today? Oh, this week, Jamie, we are reviewing the movie A Quiet Place. And this was my suggestion. Being our second movie out the gate, we, we want to do something that was more current, even though this is obviously not super current. It's from 2018. However, one of the reasons I really wanted to put this movie in front of you, James, is that this movie has so much to do with sound. You being a musician and someone who studied sound, I thought you'd really appreciate this movie. The one thing, it's unfortunate, you got to admit, this movie is made for the cinema, the theater. And unfortunately, we're watching it at home. And here we are during COVID and uh, we can't go to the theaters, but there is a new one coming out. Actually, it's due out tomorrow. A Quiet, as of the time that we're recording this, A Quiet Place 2 comes out tomorrow. And I don't know about those of you out there who are not from Canada, where we are, but uh, we're in Ontario. I'm in Toronto. James in Hamilton. We can't go to the theaters right now, and I am dying to go see this one in theaters. Yeah, absolutely. We can't get out. We're unfortunately we're stuck in our basements. We're stuck in our in our kitchens in our in our laundry rooms trying to make this happen. But absolutely, Rob, uh, you know the sound or lack thereof. I think sometimes uh, when you get into a big movie space the silence can be deafening and the silence can be really powerful. And one of the things just, again, as you mentioned off the top is there's just long, there's long, uh, long moments in this movie where there's, there's just no sound at all. You know, they're using ASL, uh, American sign language to communicate with each other. But then I think one of the most interesting things is not the kind of music that is, that is being used because you have your general kind of cinematic horror, horror music that's being uh, being used and you also have you know some very soft kind of whole tone piano type stuff that French kind of uh, you know uh, Debussy sort of type of music but it's more when it's dropped mm-hmm. you know not necessarily that it's there all the time these tender moments that that butt up against these moments of tension and then you know the the, uh, the sound director just kind of drops it in, so it's so it's really nice. But you know, we can kind of talk about that as we go through the plot and explore some of the other uh, parts of of the movie. Rob, what do you want to what do you want to start off with? Do you think? Um, well, you know what? I, you know, before we just kind of uh, before we start, let's just thank everybody for listening to the Anaconda drops that that they're the Anaconda pods that went out uh, two weeks ago. We've had some amazing feedback and. Thank you, everybody that has subscribed, that has downloaded, that is listening to them. They were an absolute blast to make. We had so much fun, so we really, we're really glad people are are enjoying them. Yeah, and as we said with that recording, we are experimenting with form for our own podcast. And you know, this one we're going to try to lock it down into just one episode. We kind of reveled in Anaconda, and uh, we felt there was <laughs> certain things we really wanted to get into. But for this one, we're trying to tighten up, and uh, I think that makes sense for this one too. I mean. Um, it's a small cast. There's not as many things to sort of, I mean, you could spend a whole episode actually to tell you the truth on the idea of disability in this movie. But, oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, to keep it within our capabilities though, and what we think we can do sharply, we're going to try to tighten this up and do a shorter pod. So yeah. Jamie, I think yeah. the first thing we should talk about is actually, um, let's talk about the director and the actor writer, uh, Krasinski, John Krasinski, who does all three duties in this movie you know we know from the office and and from the stuff that he's done before and you know one of the things that i don't know if he's doing this on purpose uh but there there's a lot of 
paying homage to other horror films. Again, you know, when you when you look back, I don't know how how much of a horror fan he is. You know, I think this is probably one of his first, if not the first foray into the into the genre. And, and interestingly, he kind of looked at this as an indie film uh, in, in some interviews that I read. And I think he might be doing some of the things by design. So, for example, the way he has himself looking. The first thing, and anybody that loves horror movies out there, I looked at him, I thought to myself, oh my God, he looks like Ronald DeFeo and George Lutz from Amityville. Don't ever do that. Not to a man with an axe in his hand. <laughs> when he's got that long, you know, luxurious brown hair and that big full beard and that rustic, that rustic look. And funnily enough, that was up in uh, the same part of the country as well. So I think that that's one of a little clever sort of um, thing that he did with his own appearance in the movie. I think he does a great job with um, with his with his directing. But Rob, you're the filmmaker of the group. You know, break it down for us a little bit more. What are some of the things that that he's doing right in this film? Like we were talking about with the sound, they do so much with that concept. They really, they really use it to its full extent. Like it takes a very short amount of time for us to understand what's happening in terms of why are they creeping around in almost utter silence. They drop little visual cues so you see a little bit of the backstory. And I also love how the writing doesn't bother to tell you the whole backstory. I'm quite happy not to know or care why these creatures have come to the earth. Um, but we see things like newspapers that say it's sound <laughs> probably the last newspaper that went out before uh, newspapers stopped coming out um, that tells you, you know, little bits and pieces about why or how these monsters operate. And right away, you're dived into that concept of the film. They're walking on sand that they've obviously done themselves. They've they've had to come out bag after bag and pour this sand to make themselves quieter and quieter to walk from where they are into the town. Rob, where are they getting all that? Where are they getting all that sand? <laughs> uh, I, last time I checked, they look like they're up in the foothills. I, well, I don't see a beach. Well, they do have a cornfield, so you know that they're going to build a baseball diamond at some point. If you build it, you will come. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good question. Where the hell are they getting these bags of sand? <laughs> like seriously, and, and you got to think how many it would take to make that trail because they make it look like they walk. A good 2k back to their house Dude, or something this the sand is everywhere yeah rob those uh those newspaper clippings those little those little hints that give us perspective you know when you're in this kind of dystopian world and i was a big walking dead fan i always you know one of my criticisms about that series is that i felt i always felt like it had a lack of more of um like a macro kind of global perspective in terms of seeing it from a different viewpoint outside of those communities right and i always wanted to get a, a better sense of time and space and even though they don't explicitly tell us what's happening they subtly do it enough and there's a few things that are that are dropped throughout the movie that gives us an understanding of, of that time and space, like those clippings. Not just one, but the aliens are here, get underground, and then we see in his little his little workroom some things that he's posted as well, but perhaps we can talk about that uh, when we get into the plot. And So let's just do that. Let's run through the film, and then we can come back and, and break down some of, the, some of the themes and some of the other questions that we have for, for this episode, okay? I just love how, you know, we're talking about as a director, I just love how this scene's set up. So, you know, lights come on and we're in a shop 
And all of a sudden, I'll, I'll just say it again, you know, you have that dystopian kind of walking dead sort of sort of feel. Uh, it's an abandoned store. You've got the family in there that's looking for for food. Clearly, they're on a, uh, a run for supplies to take back. It's all really know at this moment. It's quiet. You don't see anybody else. There's no other characters. You just see what is, you know, part of the family here. So they're going around and, and they have some interactions and there's a really nice exchange between the sister and the youngest child about a rocket and they, they sign to each other that they want to get out of here. So that's established that they're in a situation where, you know, they don't want to be there and, and, and they want to get away, but they're all very quiet. It's very apparent that there's no talking. Yeah, and that scene quickly establishes establishes the daughter Regan's um, cochlear implant and yeah, that she's right. deaf. And then right away we learned that they can all speak uh, American Sign Language, which is going to be a key thing in this film because it explains how this family was able to survive in a world where sound is the killer. If you make sound, th- these monsters appear and destroy you, kill you. Uh, we don't know that yet, but what we understand right away is that they are being dead quiet and sign language becomes key to maintaining that silence yeah absolutely but then you know that's all kind of shaken about because the little boy sees this rocket right so he wants to go away in a rocket he makes the the sign uh for a rocket and there's batteries you know either in that rocket and the dad comes over and says no you can't you can't make sound because clearly that's that's gonna mm-hmm. that, that's that's not gonna be good right classic mistake you know this guy has three kids in real life and I have kids, Rob, you have kids. So what he does is he removes the batteries from the toy and okay, like, wouldn't you put them in your pocket? Couldn't they, wouldn't they be, you know, useful at a later date? Perhaps a flashlight, perhaps anything? No. Okay. It's bad enough that he doesn't take them for himself. He leaves them right on the shelf and there's like a five-year-old right there and then he walks away. Okay, so that's a mistake because you know what happens and it's really sad, but as they leave the shop, you see the trails of sand. They're sticking to the trails of sand. They're being very quiet and they get to the bridge and it's a really beautiful shot. It looks like it's fall, perhaps in the middle of the afternoon. It's like, like you said, some of those shots are absolutely gorgeous and they're walking. It's fairly idyllic and then all of a sudden you hear this, this like children's toy of a rocket. It's a fucking VTech. If anyone has kids, it's a fucking VTech and it's making that noise. Sorry for the people of VTech who might be listening to this. I fucking hate everything you guys make and those goddamn toys with the stupid noises that they make. It's so goddamn yeah, I, annoying. You know, I, I accidentally, I, I sometimes look the other way and accidentally let Charles take that if he's taking a shower after he's been outside playing and then you just hear that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those things just go kaput. Anyways, you hear the rocket. You let me play with a VTech in the shower? Because <laughs> I hate the sound too. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> kill so, the toy. So, oh, for for sure. So the rocket there is starts to make the sound, and there's this look of sheer terror. Okay, because he knows that he should have put the batteries into his pocket. No, so he turns around and. 
all of a sudden, you know, there's music there. There, there, the, the tense moment just begins, and he starts to haul ass to get yeah. his kid. And Regan doesn't know why he's running until she turns around. So this tells you that her implant doesn't work at the moment. She has it, but it's not yeah, working. But perhaps it's not turned on, or it's it's not working. Well, we find out a little bit later why. So what happens, Rob? They're going. The the dad is going to run for his son because he loves him and because he understands that the kid doesn't really know what he's done and just before he gets him we see the first instance of the monster we don't get a good look at it but it's quick it's big it's mean and it basically just runs across the trail and then gets the kid and then we go down to it just fades to black there just the scene cuts yeah, they don't they don't let us, you know, see the gore. I think that would be too much. But man, the bravery of this film to start with a kid death. I mean, holy cow. Talk about a heart wrenching moment too. anyone who has kids will immediately understand this predicament, this idea of like, oh, my gosh, how would you ever keep three kids silent? And you've got this five year old. He's probably five, six. Yeah, I my kid could not. He's four and a half or almost five. There's no way he would understand the idea of being sheer silence all the time. He just wouldn't comprehend how that's, he wouldn't just, he just wouldn't understand. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Mine either. And, and it's, it is a really, it's a moment that just kind of makes you stop and think that, hey, you know, this is a horror film. This is a thriller film. This is part adventure film really kind of at, at moments at times but it's also a film about a lot more and then we come out of that scene and and then for the next sort of five or six minutes you know we get some shots about him uh, and he's sending out radio signals we get a sense of like the time and space uh, their house what it's like um, you, know, you know in and and then something revealed that's really important is that the wife is pregnant mm-hmm. you the see around the pregnant. house yeah, and you see yeah. around the house this sort of the technology of silence, the sort of all the methods and ways that they've been trying to keep dead quiet. Um, and, you know, this is where that sort of theme of this being a survivalist movie, much the way you were talking about with how Walking Dead operates, this sort of like, you know, you're on your own. You're, you're trying to figure out all these methods to, to maintain, uh, well, to stay alive in this, in this screwed up world. Yeah. And then we go and, and you know, it's... They're they're trying to show in the plot that it's it's moving along, but it's it's still very sad because it's fresh in your mind that that this boy is just killed, and then we hit this really great shot that I couldn't help but think something else. Where uh, the, the main character um, Krasinski, he's up on the he's up on the tower and he's looking through things from from his son, and uh, so then we see that he starts a fire, and. You look off into the distance and on top of other silos, I guess, and surrounding farms in the area, uh, you have all these other fire fires that uh, <laughs> all these other fires that start. And I swear to God, I thought Legolas was going to jump out of Gandalf and, and like it was just reminded me of the Rohan warriors being called into action. The beacons are lit! Gun knuckles for eight! And Rohan will answer. Hey, and a clever callback too, because that scene is the scene of hope in Lord of the Rings, right? That that, that the call has been answered by the other communities in Lord of the Rings, and they're all going to band together and fight the bad guys. In this movie, the there's a, a similar implication that hey, we're all being quiet, but hey, we're up there and we we see you and we're, we're still alive, and 
you know, there's always hope. We're going to figure this out. So we see that. And then we get into what is is going to be like our first tense moment. Because, you know, we, we've had the kill. But I'm waiting as a horror film. I'm waiting for this to kind of like kick up a notch, right? So what they're doing, they're, they've got their little... Uh, their little felled badges and they're playing Monopoly and what happens is is they have to be quiet but he knocks over the lantern mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a crash and then all of a sudden it's on everything gets a little bit tense and they hear a sound outside so then there's a couple of things that happen there first thing is you see that even a little sound inside is a, is a huge deal and then that also tells us how how acute the hearing must be of these monsters, eh, Rob? Yeah, the fact that you could, like, even just the littlest sounds are able to, that it could be life or death, which is mm-hmm. probably why the society and their life is set up the way it is, right? Yeah, it's, there's a, their life is almost, I, th- I heard Emily Blunt describe it as agony um, <laughs> because they are trying as hard as they can to stay silent and still have a functioning family life. Um, so something as simple as playing Monopoly actually becomes super dangerous. They're playing with felt. Like they've re- obviously replaced this is these are cool details in this movie where they've replaced the tokens in Monopoly with felt so that, <laughs> you know, they can play in silence. Boom, they knock over the the lantern because they're lit by like a fire lantern, which causes a quick fire. They quickly put it out. They become quiet as they can. Yeah. And still the monster picks up and is rattling around above them because they live underground, right? Yeah. And um and, you know, it has picked up that noise and now it wants to know where they are. For sure. What about the kale plates, man? I was wondering what they're eating because <laughs> I lived in Korea for a brief amount of time. We used to wrap meat and uh, Korean barbecue and lettuce and eat it like that. Like it was, uh, I forget what we called it, wraps, I guess, lettuce yeah. wraps. Yeah, and like I loved it, but I was looking at that going like, oh, God, like that's how that's all they can eat. They're eating local, man. It's, it's good. Like, <laughs> Right. So Regan and the father are kind of in a not a spat but in an unspoken tenseness because they do both feel tremendous guilt over the death of the son and the father's been working on her implant trying to get it to work and she's getting frustrated because it never works um but what's interesting about that is he has the workshop in the basement and he doesn't let her come down to see it do you understand why i I, that's something i didn't quite glue together either i was like why is it a secret to her that he's working on this and down there is where he has the newspaper clippings. He has the radio device. So it confused me as to why he's holding that back from her. I, I, I'm going to, you know what, Rob, I think it's a, it's a good question. As a parent, I would want to probably shield that away from my kids. I know that she's there's a teenager, that f- isn't she? She's or, know, or close well, to it. Close to it. Like there's that fine line between being open and honest with your kids, but also understanding that they're young and they don't need all those external stresses and external forces sort of, you know, just just being really, it, it would be really hard on them, right? And for her going down there and understanding that, you know, there's all those red lines crossed off on those shortwave radio frequencies and he's been trying and it's dire and it's this situation. Mm. I'm not sure that that's going to be the best for the mental health of the family, which brings back a point to what you were talking about earlier with how difficult like it is you're trying to raise a family you're trying to survive you know that's that's part of the appeal of this movie and, and the complexity is that it's all kind of woven into one right so you know that's uh that's that's my sense here and and then she storms off you know because there is this tension and this is you know this is a classic horror movie is that now you've got the daughter going you've got the son and the father that are off on a 
fishing hunting trip and then you've got the you've got the the wife who stayed home quick question well, right the, here the the daughter actually um disappears the mom thinks she's nearby but then turns out she's actually gone for a yeah, walk she just to the walks memorial site of the, of the boy that's right what do you think they did in their previous life? Because they were 472 days into this world. I have a couple of ideas, but real quick, what do you think their jobs were? Are you assuming that this is not their property? That's just blowing my mind right now. I don't know that this is their house. I assumed it was, but <laughs> you know, do we ever see the pictures on the, on the stairwell? Do we actually know that? You're right. You know, maybe they're not. I don't know. That's I, a good question. Yeah, like I had a feeling that, you know, that's and that is that and and that's great. Just having these conversations just live right now is that maybe just the logical thing is to think of their house. But the way I was looking at it is that they were somehow fleeing somewhere and they'd come across this this area, and or come across this farm, and now they were setting up. But I think it could go either way. I just was, I was wondering. You know, they've stayed alive for this long. What did they do? What were their jobs? What are their skills that they've that they've brought into the equation? Do you have do you have any thoughts on that? The dad seems to have an endless amount of skills, which he's a bit of a superhero in this movie. Um, he's trying to learn how to build like, the cochlear implant. Like he's he's actually consulting medical textbooks and trying to build this thing. Yeah. Um, he obviously, you know, he, there's a shortwave radio, so he's very systematic in everything he does scratching off the uh, the, the other uh, stations trying to see if he can communicate with anyone he's he's making charts of everything he's learned about the monsters he has newspaper clippings he's all his ways of operating on the farm the, the when he does the fire thing how he walks around all of it is so systematic so it's I, like an inventor like he's an engineer or scientist or something right like he's like you said he's documenting everything I thought that was I thought it was fascinating all right so we move this along so we've they've split up she's in the house and there's a really nice uh, this awesome foreshadowing where this like nail reminds me of home alone where Marv is gonna step on that nail <laughs> actually well there you go right like anyways this nail she's got a laundry bag and this nail like you just know she's gonna be stepping on this nail oh, I know yeah as soon as that nails oh, up and it's like, just like Ooh. and I'm cringing inside right because I yep. just know that it's just gonna be bad mm -hmm. so then you know, we, we go to the boy and the father and and the, he tells the son that water is safe, right? And they just kind of have a movement, you know, like, why don't you build a house by a waterfall? Well, like, that'd be fucking stupid, right? Like, you can't build a house in rock. So they can't live there, but they can go spend that, that little bit of time there. But then, as they're, I think, heading back, you know, they come across this crazy old man and he's distraught because the camera pans down and his wife has been killed by the killed by the monster there's a huge gash around her abdomen and then there's this great just kind of close-in scene and then what does he do at the top of his lungs while he's being told to shush he screams as loud as he possibly can what do they do the boy and the father boom they beat it right for a neighboring tree and all they do is watch. And th this is quite a tense scene because, you know, it's been fairly light for the whole movie, but about the 45 minute mark kind of kicks in high gear. And then they see the monster come out from the side uh, forest and just does him in. And just as quick as he came, quick as he's gone. 
The old man to me also looks a lot like Krasinski. Maybe just the fact that he's got the beard and the long hair. And, and you know, that could be because it's been 400 plus days without a haircut. Um, or, you know, but <laughs> there was something interesting about this old man looks like what Krasinski might look like in 20 years or 30 years. Um, and A little bit, yeah, for sure. And he's mourning his wife who you know, they've survived this long. We're 400 plus days in and these two old timers have kept alive. But finally, you know, the monster caught up to them. And, um, you know, you can see a future, a bleak future for our family in that moment that this could be a foreshadowing of what could come. Yeah, like, okay, here's the thing. Like, you know, I think sometimes just because we can doesn't mean we should. And what I mean by that is, and it speaks to your point about the the bleak future, is just because we can survive in this world, it doesn't mean we want to survive in this world. And if you're looking at the next 20, 30 years living this way, is that worth it? Now, I'm, I'm I'm not going to suggest that it's not worth trying to survive, but I think it's not the easy decision that that we would that we would maybe think it is and in a scene like that where you see like you said a little bit of like a a porthole into the future uh perhaps it's not the the old man is it's not worth it you know yeah the old man has lost what he had to live for krasinski still has his family and that's all he has to live for is to protect them and so um the old man has lost that and now he he's give he gives up because of that good segue we come back to the house and her water breaks she's coming back down into the basement and then she steps on the nail she forgets that it was there and she can't make a sound just imagine that the agony she would be in she's going into labor she just stepped on a fucking nail that's gone like that's two inches into her foot Mm. and then of course of course the monster is in the house which I have to ask myself, how did it get into the house? They're very quiet, right? Did it just kind of want, yeah, did it just kind of wander in? Did they uh, hear, I mean, I don't think we get a big sound moment out of her water breaking, but is that what he hears? Like, what? what? Fuck, I don't know, man. I don't think it would be that loud. I agree. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I remember watching that scene being like, well, what, what clued in the monster to show up? I mean, does the monster just kind of prowl around the neighborhood all the time? Maybe I think it might be just one of those. This is a Hollywood film kind of kind of thing. And yeah, then, so it's got to arrive now. To pro, yeah, to propel the story. All of yeah. a sudden, it's like they're doing all the right stuff because you don't have much of a, a movie if they're doing everything correctly and the monster never gets close. So eventually, it's in the house, and then she goes down to the basement, and the monster is able to uh, f- f- come down here, and then you get a really good look at the monster. You know. It, it reminded me of sort of like Stranger Things, that kind of that Ooh. kind of monster. They all are ugly. Uh, so then she's in the basement, and so then the monster comes down, and you know you get a, you get a first shot of the the ear. But we can, we'll talk about that later. A great scene is, and then you learn more about their system that they have set up, right? Because they've been there for a long time. Is the father and the son come over the hilltop, and all of a sudden there's this beautiful contrast between like the lights being on. They were like, uh, like that 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 yellowish color. Now they're red. So clearly that's a warning signal. And he just busts ass. Like he he's hauling it down because he knows something's wrong. Emily Blunt now has to get in the bathtub and deliver the baby, but the monster is creeping right by her, and 
she's lit she's turned on the lights outside that go from yellow to red which tell the neighborhood um and tell her husband that something's up it's a warning sign so as he comes over the hill and sees that he books it and he runs directly to a place where he sets off fireworks and of course the fireworks being so loud are distracting and the monsters of course are like you know kind of overwhelmed but also like need to go investigate they want to see what this is and she gives her the moment to finally scream so that she can you know push out her child um krasinski arrives at the house with a shotgun and he finds the bathtub with blood splattered in it and he assumes the worst he actually slouches against the wall you know thinking oh god she's gone but then her hand strikes the shower where she's hiding her bloody hand and we realize she's not only alive but the baby's alive too and although she strikes the shower kind of loudly considering the uh, <laughs> monsters can hear sound one of the very interesting things to me was how that child is laid into a crib with a lid on it which basically looks like a coffin right from the womb to the tomb but that yeah. child is uh, safe and sound, and this is to help, obviously, muffle the sound. Okay, you have the son that is running through the cornfields, and uh, he's making his way to the silo. And then you have the daughter, who doesn't know the monsters there. But we find out something really interesting at this point, where it seems that uh, when the monster is, is around her, she's really quiet. But the feedback from her cochlear implant actually is is really effective against the monster the monster doesn't like it it uh i'm not gonna say it gives him a headache <laughs> but it's <laughs> a little aspirin but it's like it's it's really it bothers him and, and send, sends him off which is something that is going to be really important for for something later on so we we find a weakness right because right. it doesn't she, really we see the weakness as the viewer but um regan doesn't know that the monster is nearby it's the it's the proximity between the two of them that causes the feedback and she didn't even realize it was there so the two the two uh the siblings are able to meet up and they are on the silo together and they're, and they're trying to decide what to do should they go into the house or should they stay put the boy keeps saying we got to stay put this is the plan dad says stay here he'll come for us we might just have to sleep the night here and they they try to light the torch with whatever oil they have left <clears throat> and none of the community responds we don't get the the lamps from legolas and, <laughs> and gimli so the implication here is that everyone is dead around here now and that's um makes me wonder if you know <laughs> did the fireworks have something to do with that did maybe those <laughs> fireworks you used as your um emergency last resort you know scare the monsters away thing actually cause all those people to get murdered who knows um so krasinski has to leave and go find his kids and as he leaves uh, he's you know he had they have a doorway with a, like a bed over it so he slips out tries to put it back on or puts it back on leaves and we see water leaking and jamie where's the water coming from why is there a leak here and this but that water a, starts to get into the basement yeah, so what I think happened was and the monster was there before and and what she did was actually really smart is she was doing a little bait and switch where she was off on one side but she had set a like a kitchen timer in in order to like have a diversion so she could get upstairs to the to the uh, bathtub this, where and she this is in like the, the mom you're talking about right yeah this is the mom right so what I think probably happened is that when that kitchen timer then the the monster went crazy and must have hit a pipe uh, and and the water started coming down. 
Now, while this is happening, when you know this is such a such a, a great scene, I think it comes in at around 104, 105 for the for the listener out there if you want to go to it. You know, you've got the kids that are up, like you said, Rob, they've they've lit the flame, you've got the the fire, you've got the dad that's out searching for him, and then you've got the wife that's back into the house, the water's coming in, and then all of a sudden there's this reddish hue that comes over the basement and the water is filling up and she notices that the creature comes down the steps and there's probably about i don't know maybe 20 feet from where she gets off the bed she puts her feet into the water and and now it's up to her knees you know what i mean like this the water's quite deep and yeah, what like, is, how long has this water been going for? Oh, I, I, or at least it's, listen, I had my basement flood once uh, downstairs, in my downstairs bathroom, and the, listen, it fills up quickly. I was oh. freaking out. I was All yelling right. at my wife to turn up. Anyways, but... <laughs> is there monsters in the water? <laughs> no, no monsters. So this great scene where you're, you're going from... Um, point of view from her across the water and the monster mm-hmm. comes down but doesn't walk in almost goes head first and mm-hmm. slithers into it like but like there's just the the glare of the red light on it it is amazing it made me think of friday the 13th part six um uh where tommy is calling jason into the water Jason is walking into the water at a very brisk pace, but then almost slows down just before his head totally submerges into it, where you have that chill that just goes down the back of your spine because you know that when that monster comes up, it's not going to be 10 feet away. It's going to be right in front of you. It's just, is it going to come up quickly or is it going to come up slowly? Is it going to come to the side of you a little bit? It is really one of the creepiest sort of horror elements in this movie and and that's what we're doing we're talking about horror films and this is really like a true horror moment in a quiet place and and it's such a great scene again 10433 for those out there that want to just kind of go to it it's it's worth watching and the issue here is that the baby's in the middle of the room she's on one side monsters on the other baby's in the middle and baby is floating in his um, manger there. <laughs> he's, he's he's floating in the middle, and so she's got to wade into the water and get close to it to pick him up and take him out. But just as she's about, I think does she have the lid off? I can't remember. Um, right as she gets right next to the floating uh, crib, the monster slowly comes out on the other side of that crib, and you can kind of hear the baby inside, just like. You know, just little, little, little coos. And, you know, you know, in this film, that's enough to get burnt. So, so this yeah, it's, tension it's, is so thick. Oh, it's, it's so good, right? It's just like, it's so dark. It's, it really is. And I, I just get excited talking about it because it's just, it's just one of those moments where you're just so transfixed on the scene. She's able to pick the baby up, 
really slowly move away. I guess she's not making any sound, which is interesting because water carries sound. So you'd think that the, you know, but it is pouring in. So it could be, there's another sound source in the room. Yeah. That's a good point from the waterfall, right? We knew that 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 sort of defected. And actually, and the film set that up for us. Like they've told us that water makes it hard for them to discern noises. Oh, absolutely. And then she kind of backs away with her, with her head down uh, and then kind of goes behind what is like a waterfall in their basement. And then the creature, and then we cut away to the dad. He's back into the cornfield, and what he does, he, he he's looking for his kids. He's you know, and um, stumbles across their bag. We get a cut back into the basement scene, and classic again. On one side of like that that waterfall, and then you have the creature's face that just is going to peer through, just almost get to, just to break the water. Which just like is, Anaconda, buddy. Oh, that's it. Yeah, exactly, man. Anaconda. Like, we can't get away from it, right? The snake coming through the water. Where's Paul Cerrone in a quiet place? You know, we need him here. This is but, when Westridge got, got marked. So, he's, you know, the water's there. And uh, and then just when you think that the, the creature's going to put his face through the water, bolts away because it hears something. And what does he hear? So you had the two kids up on the silo, and then you have, of course, the boy. What does he do? He falls through the silo, <laughs> down into the grain. He fucking, it's like quicksand. It reminds me of a princess bride, right? When you came down, like these guys, <laughs> like they're, this kid's unable to get out. He's sinking. It's kind of funny, but it's also not, you know, like the fact I did not that find he, the scene funny at all. I was super <laughs> tense. It's funny. Okay, so let me tell you something about what happened with this movie. I watched this scene and I, I, I can't say I was super affected by it. I was like, oh, it's scary. Like he ends up falling in. The, the daughter comes down to help him. This, the noise they create um, brings the monster sniffing around. And then suddenly, oh, yeah. the, and then the, the lid from the, or whatever you call it, the door of the silo at the, on the ceiling falls down. Now the I think it's referred comes... to as a hatch. Oh, okay, there you go. The hatch. The door of the hatch <laughs> falls down, almost slices the kid in half. And then the monster <laughs> comes down, arrives right behind them, like comes out. Does he come out of the corner or just jumps down? And oh, then, he jumps down. And then they've got the door to protect themselves like a shield. The monster's on one side, you know, trying to squish them or bite them, get through to them. Its, it's claws can tear through the sheet metal. Oh, don't forget at one point, she f- it actually is submerged in the grain. Like you oh, think yeah. she's going to be gone. Like she comes down and you know that feeling, right? Where it's like, you know, if you've ever been ever been in one of those like ball pits right like you know when you're a kid like in the cne it's like ah, it's the best thing ever but it's like i can't get out of this ball pit because you just everything's moving and you're sinking in that's what's right. going on here right and sure enough the good brother grabs his sister's hands able to pull her out it's very easily by the way but yeah no considering she's so much bigger than him but whatever <laughs> so you know she gets pulled out they have this nice moment he's peeling his way down to because the monster heard the sound and is is going towards the silo as fast as he can, literally runs right by him. And then they're in the silo. All of a sudden, the creature's there, falls down, and they have this hatch that's fallen that almost killed them, but now it's protecting them. It's like a big shield. And the monster's on there. But what happens again? It's her implant that is is creating feedback and creating static and then then he runs off and literally tears out of the silo. And an interesting parallel, and we'll relate it back, and I think we'll probably do this, Rob, a lot with the movies that we review, the, the thrillers, the horrors we talk about, is when the snake killed Mateo and you saw the, 
you saw the tree branch that was crushed at the same time and we saw the sheer power and magnitude of the snake we see the same thing in the creature this creature is able just to literally run right through a metal silo wall and this is not some you know it is like a perfect a perfect outline of the creature that's able to go through so this, this he like creature, kool-aid man's that fucking silo oh yeah right through it oh yeah <laughs> it is a little weird that they reveal that power of the monster that late in the movie that it can We've seen scratches well, on walls, knew, and yeah, things, but now we see that it can rip right through metal. Oh yeah, you knew it's fast. You knew I gotta it's tell fast, you, right? I gotta tell you the scene, Jamie. When I watched it, I wasn't really that tense. Like I, I was like, oh yeah, well, like I, I didn't, I didn't expect them to die or anything, so I wasn't that tense. Yeah. But the strange thing was, I had a nightmare about this movie the next night after I watched it recently. Except that instead of the monster trying to kill me, and I've got the, I've got the hatch. I had an iPad, and. <laughs> Monster Fox was, was coming after you trying to get the iPad. <laughs> I can't remember if Fox was with me or if we were under the iPad and the monster's trying to get us and we're using the iPad as a shield. <laughs> get away. Go play I didn't die in the dream though either, so I guess it was fun. So these kids get out and they're reunited with their father. The kids and the father, and they have a really kind of nice in, embrace here, uh, but you sense something is still happening. They're not sure where the monster is, but they're moving really slow. They they kind they kind of come close to it. They come close to a shed. There's an abandoned car there, and the father is is looking to protect his kids. He tells them to go seek cover. So they run towards the car really quietly. They jump into the cabin, and uh, the dad he grabs an axe and he's he's looking around. And then it's a great shot where you see kind of like a side angle, and the creature is there up on top of the shed and what's going to happen he's going to jump down he's going to slap the dad right across the face the kids are are freaking out they're inadvertently making noise because they're terrified so no no the the, cr- the boy actually yells out dad he yells he doesn't inadvertently make noise he screams <laughs> he's concerned about his father he's been scared the whole movie rob yeah you know, so he's, he, he's he's been nervous the whole movie yeah and then no uh, his name is marcus the boy played by noah jupe he his arc is pretty simple in this movie he witnessed his yeah. his little brother get murdered and since then he's been essentially petrified like paralyzed with fear about these monsters he yep. has several panic attacks throughout the movie and in this scene, his father, who's sort of coaching him to help him survive in this world, he sees him go down and, and you know, this is the moment Marcus loses it and just screams. Um, luckily, his sister Regan knows this is bad news, so she closes the doors of the, of, the, of the car. So when the monster attacks, it's still, although we knew it can cut through metal now, it still has some sort of separation. Now, this is where Regan learns what's going on with her implant, because at first, the monster gets near and the implant starts feedbacking again right but she doesn't like it so she tries to help like she doesn't realize it's affecting the monster so she turns it off and then the monster gets more aggressive because now it's not in pain anymore and it goes back to what it wanted to do and that's go after them that's right so the monster is so the kids are in the car the monster's on the roof the kids are the kids are scared the monster's it's very close it's it's imminent death and then and then really you get to you know what I think is, you know, I'm a I'm a dad. You get to really kind of the the one scene in the film that is going to stick with you. Uh, so the shot is from behind the dad. The dad's looking at the car, and you know that he drops the axe, and you know it's going to happen. And then there's a really beautiful exchange between the daughter 
and the father because they had had some tension, a little bit of guilt between between them. <laughs> a little bit of guilt, dude. <laughs> they both feel tremendous guilt over the death of their brother and son. <laughs> There's guilt there, Rob. And they sign something to each other. And and then what happens is he signed. You should probably tell what it is. He signs. Well, I have always loved you. I have always loved you. I love you. I I, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil everything for the for the for the listener here. Right? You Dude, go watch I'm pretty the whole plot. Because <laughs> <laughs> every every scare they know is coming out. If you haven't listened to the movie, by the way, I put it in our description. By the way, I said by the way, our reviews include spoilers. Oh, okay, that's good. So then, I love you. I have always loved you. And then. The dad just offers the most guttural of screams. And it's just a matter of seconds after that, that the monster comes and it's just boom. So the dad is... Yeah, he sacrifices himself. He sacrifices himself to save to save his, his children. Although they and, think they think pretty quickly on their feet because I don't know how he thought... Like these monsters are so fast that... Oh, yeah, what, like they had to move quickly, right? But so what they do is they throw the car in reverse. For some reason, it's parked on a hill. <laughs> I don't know why. They take the, the parking brake right. off. <laughs> <laughs> they, turn, they take the parking brake off and just roll down the hill with the monster. Rob, how many times did you fail your driving test? I never did. <laughs> I never failed my driving test. I did not like driving not standard. Speeds. <laughs> my motto was, as a child or as a, as a teenage driver in my standard truck was no copper. No stopper. <laughs> you know, we'll say it was going to be bonus episodes, right? Uh, the, uh, the the horror story of you driving us up in Perth back in '97. Uh, oh but anyways, let's finish off the movie here. So, you're right. They 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 think quick. They throw it in reverse, and then what happens next? Rob, take us home here, and so we can get into some of the some of the other parts of the film. Yeah, luckily they roll right to the uh, entrance of the house. <laughs> right to, right the to it. Eh? It's like African land safari. <laughs> They get right to the <laughs> secret basement where dad's bunker and they all run in where mom, I guess, has already uh, retreated to. So they all reunite there. Um, but they know the monster's still coming. So uh, Marcus takes the baby. Mom and um, and Regan are spread out in the room as the monster comes down the stairs. She finally gets a glimpse at the workshop, the dad's workshop. And she is crying because she just saw her father kill, but she realized how much and just the whole idea of, of love between the two, she realized how much and how hard he was working to make her life better, to make her, her implant just functional. So it's really existing on, on many levels here. But very quickly, the mother comes over and explains, you know, you know we've got to, we've got to get going here, right? There's some, you know, we're still in, we're still in danger. Uh, she's got the shotgun and the son has got the baby, a little bit nervous, and of course the monster is back into the basement, right? It, they're still in imminent threat. Mm-hmm. But like you said, at this point, you know, she's realized that the implant is something that she can use to her advantage. And what she what does she do is that she activates it and the monster clearly is in, extremely affected by it. And what happens is, and something we learned earlier, is that the armor that is surrounding the face of the monster, it, it seems to expand and it's going to expose, I guess, just your the organic natural tissue. And what happens is she's got a 12 gauge shotgun and she blows his motherfucking head off. <laughs> <after>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
which is amazing. But you have this like you have this like ten seconds where the the monster's head is all going every which way, you know. It's like convulsing, and it's it's like pretty cool. So. Yeah, and that's it. And we've now learned, you know, how to how to kill these things, which is great because as they look over their shoulder, they see the surveillance cameras. There's two more of these dog-like creatures coming, and um, you know they've heard the shotgun sound, so they're coming down. So what do they do? She turns up the ocular plant implant. She turns up the ocular implant, and I think she's even got it hooked up to the the loudspeaker, right? Yeah, and she cranks the volume yeah, on that she, to get ready to just blast these dudes. And mom's meanwhile is just like, here, let's get them, boys. Yeah. Now, they said earlier in the film that there was, you know, one of the things that he had written down that there was three, definitely three sighted, right? Three confirmed, yeah. Three confirmed. So there's one shot where they see two, on, uh, like under the surveillance on one camera, and then they see another two. I don't know if that makes five with the dead one. Uh, I took those different or, angles. I took yeah, that's, different that's what maybe I thought. So Same I think two. it was probably... Yeah, so then all of a sudden we went from a bleak situation to, you know, how does the movie finish, right? You see the, the creatures on the surveillance camera and then the mom gives like a very like approving look. She cocks the gun and then they're just <laughs> the going the, to put the implant to the loudspeaker and then they're going to do battle. So that's how, the, that's how the film ends, right? So we come in at an hour and 23 minutes, almost an hour and 24 minutes. So we don't even get the magical 90 minute mark in this movie. At least Anaconda did that, but it, it wraps up nicely, although quickly. Uh, and then there's the plot that, uh, for, for a quiet place, but there's, there's a, there's a bunch of things that I think I want to go back and, and talk about Rob. Okay. So, I think how we wanted to look at this was we wanted to look at the plot and then we wanted to look at a couple guiding questions to take us through. So my first question really addresses, Rob, what are the overarching themes that come out of this movie that you identify that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think we should talk about how this movie is like a, a movie about parenting and it's like this metaphor for the idea of like keeping your kids alive and, and helping them grow and, and, and the job of a parent. I think, you know, there's some survival. It's like a nice hybrid genre movie where it combined, you know, the horror genre with like survivalist uh, type movies where you see like all these crazy things they have to do to sort of stay alive. And we have to talk about how the role of disability in this because disability, that being Regan's deafness, who is played by Millicent Simmons, who actually is a deaf person, um, the disability becomes an advantage. You, it doesn't, um, you know, in this world, speaking and sound um, uh, are what kill you. So knowing sign language is paramount. It's it's one of the most important things to the film because they can communicate, whereas other people probably cannot. Um, and they have to realign their whole paradigm. But do you want to start with parenting? Is that where you want to go? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with parenting. Rob, you know, one of the things I'm drawn to with this film and one of the things that I thought about is sort of one's ability to, to, you know, it's parenting, but also kind of coincides with the idea of sacrifice, right? And not all sacrifice is is giving your life. There's different kinds of sacrifice. And one of the hardest things about sacrifice is that, you know, sometimes we just, we act, you know, when we when we feel a certain way without thinking, just because our our parental maternal instincts kick in but what really struck me with this 
was when he gives up his life at the end, he has time to think about it. And it's even more impactful. And it made me think and ask myself the question. And I'll, I'll, I'll share two stories. Actually, I'll ask you first, Rob, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Mm-hmm. Rob, not even just with parenting, but somebody that you care for somebody that you love. Have you ever not thought about it and just done something where you know you were going to put yourself in harm's way to sacrifice yourself or your family, a loved one could be your own Rob, it could be somebody in your own family or someone in your extended family. Have you ever just not thought and just acted and, and regards of the consequences? Boy, that's a hard question. I wish you'd prep me on that one. <laughs> I, I don't well, recall me... a specific incident that I can remember where I acted. I think something that occurs to me, though, is just sort of a side way of approaching your question, though, is that when I became a parent, um, I had sort of very vivid fantasies about protecting my kids. I've never had those kind of fantasies before, like those sort of visceral, even you know, possibly violent fantasies that regard protecting my children. Like if someone was to threaten them, I've never really had that sort of, um, that like animal instinct to, um, cross through my brain in thinking of of ways to protect someone. It's just like with kids though, all of a sudden a new part of your brain is activated in this very protectionist way. And, you know, I can't really explain it, but I'm sure, you know, you see, you see examples of it in real life all the time. Oh, no, I think you explain it well. I think about that same stuff, too. I'm glad I'm not the only one, you know, where you're at the county fair and somebody brushes up against your three-year-old son and you're just like, you got a fucking problem, man? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> me. Yeah, I meant more like if I, if I saw someone, you know, you have fantasies about something horrible happening to your kid or someone trying to do something horrible and how you oh, yeah. act in that moment. I'm going to jump in just really quickly, tell you Please. two instances. One that... Sorry, you want to go on? No, I'm saying please do. Okay, yeah, two instances. One that had something to do with a friend, other had to do with a family, where I, I, I just thought about these two instances because I connected with it. He's he understands that there are real, real, um, you know, circumstances involved with him giving up his life, but he's doing it out of love. And I think back to, I think my my other story is my my first example is a good one. So I was on vacation with my parents uh, some years ago. And my mother is not a strong swimmer, right? And I've always felt, when I've been out with my family somewhere, I've always felt, you know, clearly I love my family, but I've always felt this kind of protectionist, not so much parenting because they're my parents, but the, the idea of the protector over them. And we were, we were walking along the beach and the water was quite rough that day and there had been a storm in and the tide was quite high we were we were somewhere where the on the pacific ocean and the water was coming in like very rough and i had really just kind of had my spidey sense uh that you know p- potentially it could get could get bad right because we weren't really paying attention and I'm, I'm walking on the beach and then the, the tide's coming in even further. And, and I'm just watching my mom. She's getting a little bit nervous because where we were specifically, we couldn't get off the beach. And, and you know, my dad is fucking looking for half price nachos. Here, this ain't paste, thick and chunky salsa. This stuff's made in New York City. He's looking for, you know, the next Mai Tai deal. And, the, you know, he has no, but I love my father, but he's got no clue, no awareness about what's going on. <laughs> Shut and, up to Don. <laughs> and all of a sudden, 
this massive beach break comes in and it, it just sweeps my mother off her feet, right? Like it comes in three feet high off her feet. She's terrified. I don't even think about the repercussions, but I jump in front of her and I just dig my feet into the sand and the water rushes past us. It probably knocked me back 20 feet down the beachhead, almost swept away into the ocean. And when I think about it, and I just looked at my mother's face after the, f- the fact, and there was two parts, thank you, two parts. My husband should, <laughs> should have been doing this, not you, Jamie. <laughs> but it was one of those moments that I didn't really, really fully understand until after the fact about how, you know, I'm not their parent, but just in a, in a familiar situation and to connect it to this is that you don't think about what's going to happen. You just act. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't think that's, I think this speaks to the kind of character that he wanted to, to portray, uh, you know, from the director's chair, right. And sort of make this character, he's brave, he's strong. He understands just like I, or, or, he understood in this situation, which makes it even more brave that he was going to die. You know, I didn't think that I was, but I understood that there could have been some real consequences doing that. And I think well, that not everybody has that in them. And I think yeah. that's was something that is so great about this character is that there's this inner strength uh, and and it disseminates through the entire family. You see that the, the mom, like it, it's they have to, but she doesn't miss a beat. You know, she, as soon as she's mourning her husband's death, or I don't even know if she knows he's dead at that point, probably. Uh, and then no, she did. Right. She saw it on the cameras, remember? She's watching down That's there. right, that's right. She and witnesses she, it. Yeah, so she doesn't miss a beat, and she's she's right back there uh, in order to make sure that she's, you know, saving, providing for the family. And there's, there's optimism there. So that's just well, one story I wanted to, I wanted to share about the idea of kind of, of sacrifice and love. Let's not um, forget Krasinski and Emily Blunt are married, right? Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. This movie means a lot to them in a, in a personal way too. And they've had, I think they have at least two children. I, I think I heard Krasinski said he was reading the script with his baby in hand. Really? So eh? like, so like, it's all, you know what it's, it's, all over the place. You can't get away from it. Uh, only a, some of those moments, some of those looks that are shared between the kids when he takes them to the waterfall and they have that really kind of playful moment. But then when he's sitting him beside and, and really trying to show him it's safe, no, it's safe. You can't fake that. You need to, you, you like, you need to have done that. Like they're actors, but it's just, there's, it's woven all the way through the movie. These nice tender moments of these exchanges between between the especially the father and the kid so well and 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 the husband and wife there's that scene where they they slow dance with the headphones on oh no right? neil young neil eh? young harvest yeah. moon little canadian yeah. connection yeah amazing um, yeah that's a really cool scene because i think it's the only mu uh, like the only contemporary music we hear it's uh, the rest of his movie music i don't know how to the right term i'm using there but yeah it's you, it's the rest of it's scored music right 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 yeah you know, I think one of the th- one of the themes, one of the maybe the secondary themes, is um, is religion. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make my case here. Okay. So, one of the things you pointed out, Rob, was let's talk about the name. So it's the Abbott family. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's a really religious. That's a really religious name. Second thing, what about the use of the cornfield? 
Okay. When we think of what corn stalks were used, right? They were, you know, the corn stalks would be used and then kind of woven into the deities of gods and religious, uh, religious uh, figures. And also you can draw lots of, lots of connections out to movies where, where cornfields are used because there's, there is a, a religious connection with maize. So you think to Jeepers Creepers, you think to um, Children of the Corn. Yeah, we will see how the Lord <gasps> favors you. No, you dare oh, not God. blaspheme. He will punish you. The jaws of hell will devour you. All of you. Which is a movie that Rob, I'm just asking. I know it's an older one. We're going Stephen King, 84. I'd love to do that one with you uh, mm-hmm. at some point. A fantastic movie of the Children of Gatlin. But I Feel, feel like dreams. <laughs> the ghosts from heaven come down. That's Iowa, man. <laughs> and then there's this. Um, then there's this great. There's this great scene. I think it's right at the beginning where they're walking on the sand. And the shot is of like a telephone pole, but it's, it's clearly looks like a crucifix and it is, it is angled. So it looks like it's almost like on like a 45 or 50 degree angle, but I I feel like it just can't be there, not on purpose because it's just, it's in the foreground uh, in the shot and it's right there. And then you also have, uh, you have the ideas of, sort of fire and water and the natural elements and the connections there. So I do think that, and also even though we don't know if that was their home or if they somehow migrated out of perhaps a more urban environment into this, into this, like what I think is probably upstate New York, upstate Pennsylvania, upstate Massachusetts, somewhere in there, they definitely have the feel of like the life they're living this kind of Puritan, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, kind of life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not drawing a parallel between the movie, like the witch and the family in there, but you, you kind of get that sense. Right. So, so I, I <laughs> was that a bridge too far? Probably. No, um, but I think I know where you're going. I think it is a bit of a reach, but I, I do. I think I know what you're saying. It's like, heck, there's even him uh, carrying his own son walking around with no shoes on. Like Jesus, there's only one set of footprints. <laughs> No, is that fucking thing? Anyway, but but I I think you're also right that you know think about this like they're on their fourth kid. They obviously don't believe in birth protection. Like Jesus Christ, people. Or maybe that maybe put it down, feel, eh? Maybe they feel like they need to repopulate. No, the I think it's, I don't know. I think well, a I think it's supposed to be a sign of love that they're still in a loving, passionate relationship. I think also though it de- it demonstrates. I mean, they probably can't get birth control, so there's another reason they have another kid but at that point um but they are they do pray at dinner so they are a religious family and i think this movie actually got some criticism um i wish i could reference the article it might have been huffington post where they talked about how <clears throat> this family is very white this movie is very white it's a white family who lives in a um you know rural environment and in many ways they kind of model themselves off those sort of I don't know the proper words, but sort of Trump Bible built, Bible beating, like libertarian living off the grid, um, guns to protect my land kind of people. And they, and they are the survivors. They are the people who are doing it right to, to live, you know, and that kind of, that kind of um, community, that kind of culture is what is surviving in this world. Yeah. I would just hate to think that, you know, we see a white family in rural and all of a sudden we're slapping the Trump 
label up on it, right? And I can understand that a big part of his demographic and people that support that and just the modern day GOP would would definitely fit uh, into this frame of what this family looks like, sounds mm-hmm. like, um, and and it's and it's white and and you know the the family is and absolutely I think we we have to ask questions about you know, what's the intention behind that? And I think there was some other criticisms that we may get into, um, in a, in a different, uh, in a different section, but, you know, is that something that you think has, you think has merit as criticism, Rob, or do you think that that, or, or, or are we, should we sometimes, are we looking at just a piece of art or do we need to be questioning everything at this point? Really? You know, if it's, a yeah, movie, to if me, it, you know, to me, it's such a small cast. It is about a family that, it doesn't um i understand why they would all be of yeah. one race and culture although of course there's tons of mixed families i just mean like it seems yeah. to make sense that you know this family is something that people can imagine and see them see uh out there in contemporary culture i do think it creates a bit of a wall for anyone of color to sort of access and feel like they have they could be in this story I would say I would say that this is a small film dealing with a very small lens on a very small spot. This is yep. an alien invasion movie, but we're only looking at one family, really. I mean, yeah. that's what it's about. Okay, well, let's talk about survivalism. That, that's a huge theme in this, right? And mm-hmm. I think we're I think we just are talking about it. <laughs> yeah, you we kind of covered it. Yeah, but um, is there anything else with with how they survive? With I, I, you know, for me, like I'm still wanting to know the sand. Did they? Did they lay it all down or did someone lay it before them and they came onto that farm and picked up like that's one of the things that i found myself asking is that did they set up that entire infrastructure and if they mm-hmm. did it would lend itself to them living there or were you know were they piggybacking on a family that perhaps didn't make it or somebody well or, there was you know, that small community at the beginning we know there's more people in the neighborhood yeah. You know, so was this a community effort where they would come together? The problem with that would be, how do the other people communicate? We know this family can communicate via um, ASL. So what? How does everyone else do it? Do they? Do you have like a community meeting where you, you just write everything down? How do you not make sound? <laughs> she taught that? everybody community meeting Sundays. Maybe they cut together at church on Sundays. Like, you know what I mean? The 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 possibilities are are endless. But this I do family- think you, you got to give the movie things sometimes so that you can enjoy it. So so yeah. what you're seeing here is a because and also like when you see things like that in a movie, a survivalist movie, it speaks to the mindset of the main character. In this case, the father, or it could be the mother too, but like again these systems that he's putting in place to try to maintain survival he's going to extreme limits but he but it's within the logic of the film within the logic of how to how to um subvert the aliens and and get away from them and survive it is all these mechanisms to absorb and get rid of sound and and, and live in silence so even though it's a breach to think that he poured 200 two kilometers of sand or whatever it is that he got it demonstrates what he's thinking, how he's thinking, the 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 brilliance of his thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. The affirmation that everybody can, that you can accomplish, really anything you set your mind out to, right? You know, not to get too poetic here, but 
in a situation that is desperate, in a situation that requires desperate action, you're going to be able to you're going to be able to adapt, right? And you're going to be able to do what you need to do to survive. And they show that they they do that. Like mm-hmm. you said, their systems. Um, without it, you don't survive. Even just the warning system, stuff like that is just is awesome. Little details like that in the movie that make it really cool. Mm-hmm. And like necessity is the mother of invention, right? So oh, that, for sure. I think that explains his mindset. Um, I think we should, the other thing you have to talk about in this movie, and, and we're moving on here, James, the thing we have to talk about with this movie is the role of disability and how oh, it treats yeah. deafness. I mean, we, we meet Regan right away. The, we actually see, before we see her face, we actually see her implant that the camera starts behind her head so that you see it to point out, hey, this character's deaf. So you learn that immediately. And, and then, you know, my first thought is how does a person who's deaf operate in this world? You wouldn't even be aware of some of the sounds you're making. Yeah. Um, but what it does is it actually operates in a way that gives an advantage to the family. Um, her ability to speak in ASL and the whole family has already learned it because, you know, she's a teenager, which is another key thing. They made her the older sibling so that it's well established that the whole family would understand this by now. Yeah. Yep. They all know ASL so they can communicate, which other people would struggle with. Um, that's a really important detail. And so this disability becomes an advantage. And I think a lot of people praise that about the film um and of course they praise the casting because they've actually cast a deaf actor um so i think those are important details and does she see you know into like it through one perspective absolutely we're looking at it and you see the the advantage the family would have but i think one of the one of the like sort of sub themes that comes out is the idea of kind of self-worth and i think she she has this push and pull with her own her own disability and i think sometimes you know she sees it or at least it it's portrayed that it's perhaps a, a detriment because i you know at least within the situation she can't her relationship with her father is tricky and that that implant that helps her he can't she can't get it to work or he can't get it to work and she gets upset and i think perhaps that puts some undue pressure on her about her own disability and how she feels about it and if she's confident with it and i think that there's that adds a lot of strain and a lot of stress and and the relationship between her and her father is even more complex because of that right she's aware of it i wish you know there are moments when they're playing at the beginning, right when they're having the the prayer with the meal, she's smiling. They're signing. She's, I think, she's aware that she's absolutely helping. That she's a part of it. But then you have these other tense moments where I think she just it has a conflicted opinion about it. D- did you see that at all, Rob? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think this is again some of the criticism of the film is that um, there is a history of treating disability as like a tragedy like yeah. that, that a family has to cope with and live with instead of refer- and, and in fact in this movie it's interesting that the, the, their ability to reframe the world because of this advantage that the disability presents to them has actually kept them alive whereas your able-bodied life would be <laughs> a problem you know yeah. you can't speak you can't communicate with all the means that we just take for granted um, so yes, I think there's like, um, a bit of a, pr- I don't know if it's problematic or what the word is, but you know, her deafness is treated as a medical problem that needs to be dealt with. Like she has this implant that's supposed to help her get around it. And without it, she's sort of been, 
disabled again. It's like looking at it as a disability rather than exceptionality. Right. Where, yeah, where we, exactly. Just, just the way we're viewing it. And I think you were talking to me about the criticism with the, the deafness helping the family along, but ultimately it was the intervention of... Of technology, meta- of technology that saves everybody. Mm-hmm. But if if that kind of if that stood alone, then I would I would I would absolutely see the criticism, and I see where the I one hundred percent see where the criticism is coming from with that. But the fact that the monster itself has that we- has that weakness, and that's evident, and it's it's been built in to the story, you know, th- throughout. I feel like it mitigates it a, a little bit, um, and then we just have to ask ourselves, you know, does is it even further mitigated with the fact that the the dad, even though it's a medical intervention, technology is helping. You know, he is just there's so much passion and love with him working on that one project uh, to help her. Does that kind of overshadow it a little bit? Where, where do you sit on the criticism, Rob? Do you think the criticism is is warranted in this film? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's something interesting about this movie in the sense that the world of silence that they live in is agony for them, except for her. She's lived in silence a good portion of her life. So the movie is trying to return the world to the ableist speaking paradigm that we all know and understand, at least those of us able-bodied know and understand. So her world is actually sort of that, that, that they're being forced to live in is you know, the compromise is, is this horrible place. And it's metaphorically represented by these monsters that destroy you if you make sound. So there is this like the desire in the movies to return to a normal world that the world that we know, not normal, I shouldn't say, instead of embracing the paradigm shift that would you, what was the word used? Exceptionalism would have, would have allowed for. Yeah. The exceptionality exceptionality so that, that would have created like the idea that there could be a divergent and you know alternate possible world that can live at the same time that doesn't need to be in conflict but this movie puts those two this movie puts those two in conflict and makes you makes the viewer you know want to return to the world where we can speak again and what one of the criticisms i read that was actually very practical criticism was that in the movie the sign language is subtitled but the speaking isn't so for those who can't hear, they only got to understand the ASL and then they were blocked out again when it came to speaking. That's actually, that's, that's, now there's a criticism I can get behind. I didn't even pick up on that and I'm glad you did. Oh, uh, I, I didn't, I read it. I, I didn't pick it up. Jamie, that brings up a good point that kind of brings us right to how'd you feel? Did this stand up as a horror movie? And Oh, okay. Yeah, and I was gonna ask about the monster, but do you want to talk about the movie first or just let's go straight to what do you think I'm about gonna, this okay, monster? I'm just gonna I'm gonna jump, I'm gonna sort of bring them all up into one, okay? You know, how does this stand up as a horror film? You know, are there a couple of um, frights and scares? Sure. Are there a couple of really tense scenes? There are. But they're a little bit more few and few and far between. I I feel like it's more of a tense thriller than stands up as like a horror film where you're actually scared and the tension just just really kind of never releases. At, in this movie, there's a lot of release, and I always found 
at least in this one, that, you know, I, I didn't find the, um, I found the, the, the setting and the home, I always found it pretty accessible. Not that it's that I found this, the monster, you know, overly like not scary. I just felt, I felt comfortable in the movie. And I think that's probably because I think that the idea of family is, is a much stronger f- like feeling and theme in this movie than the actual horror movie itself. And I think that's probably why it generated such a, a wide, wide audience. And it did so well is that it's way more than a horror film. In fact, I think it's it, the horror side of it really at times really gets pushed to the side. The one true, in my opinion, horrific scene is when they're in the basement when the monster submerges because then you've got all those 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 horror uh, constructs right you've got the light you've got some of those up close images you've got really um you've got the water uh, you just really have some some re- some really good tension that's at play there uh, but as a horror film i can't say that i was you know, I had moments where I had to turn away. I, I, I can't say that I was scared. I was more, yeah. What do you, what do you think, Rob, in terms of, you know, as a, as a, as a horror film? I have to disagree with you in terms of comfort. I am uncomfortable watching this movie constantly like, throughout the whole thing. I am really, eh? oh, it's so tense. And like this, this is the elements of like, you know, even her testing her ocular, her, um, cochlear implant snapping your fingers and i'm thinking to myself you can't snap your freaking fingers not in this world um all those things the baby oh my god and then you know the child's death at the beginning is so heart-wrenching to me that the horror element of the monster truly isn't scary it's the it's the thing that can bring the monster that scares you and and you're right. It's maybe it's not scare, but it's um, yeah. It's exactly. It's more of like a, more of like a like like a macro horror than it is like a scare. I'm 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 scared. You know. Yeah. Although it's, I did have a nightmare, so I couldn't explain because I didn't feel scared <laughs> watching it. Um, but I did feel completely uncomfortable, and 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 I thought that was a, such an incredible achievement for that film to make you so conscious of everything they're doing. And let's talk like their performances are so interesting to me, like the things they have to do. You know, um, I, I watched an interview where they talked about even their signing had personality, like every actor had to kind of come up with their personality for their signing. Yeah. Um, and so like, to me, there's just so much interesting stuff going on in this movie. And I'm, I'm both like watching it with fascination, like, oh, cool. They had to do this to live in this world. But then also, oh man, how do they deal with this situation? And now they're walking by this thing and now they have to go here. And yeah. like, I love thinking about how they had to think about those things. Oh, absolutely. Is it tense? Yes. Is it thrilling? Yes. Is it heart-wrenching? Is it, you know, in terms of like an atmospheric horror? Absolutely. But I think just some of the, some of the more on the technical side, like, you have some of that that horror music but there's there's lots of breaks lots of release with nice kind of soft whole tone piano music that kind of that that just breaks it off you also in a lot of horror films you have those up close scenes those prolonged scenes right where you you expect you know something's going to happen but the camera never moves it's like what you don't see in this 
in this scene, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of wide angle shots where you 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 see a lot in the frame, which kind of gives your brain a little bit of time to to process mm. what's going on, mm. and kind of just kind of relax. Like I said, that basement scene for me, and then maybe the scene up in the bathtub where it's is right up against her face. You know, this this for me the scariest elements are are with the monster and the woman, right? Mm-hmm. Only because she's pregnant or with baby, and and you know just the juxtaposition between those two. There's some scary and just the, the the director, um, you know, the lighting that's been chosen for those particular scenes, I feel like are, are scary. They're in the old house, you know, she's alone like that. It's got some good scare to it, but you know, as a horror, I don't know, to me, it's more like, um, I guess this is more like, a, like a thriller, well, what a do you survivalist think? thriller. Yeah. So what do you think of the monster? Cause you know, horror movie, we often talk about what is the monster is the monster actually terrifying? First of all, let's let's start with, I got a few points here. So let's talk about the appearance first. What did you think when you saw it? I thought it was some kind of like spider or some kind of like arachnid first, because it was, it's, it's, it was hard to, hard to see how it was walking. It looked like it had like four legs, like some kind of insect monster that was walking and it was really quick. And, you know, you, you don't see it up on its hind legs like more vertical until later on in the film and it reminded me when the armor is over it reminded me a little bit of like venom mm-hmm. you know from spider-man it just mm-hmm. kind of like those bigger eyes especially those teeth perhaps that was something that was in the the conceptualization for the for the monster and you know we just came off uh this was 2018 so this was just you know humming along right when stranger things were coming which was mm-hmm. like a monster dimensional you know, the demigorgon or whatever but, it's called. Yeah, the demigorgon, right? So you had a little bit of that, a little bit of that vibe into it as well. Definitely um, aliens to me. Oh, for sure. And with the scene with the water, like mm-hmm. you know, the idea of the alien, you know, peering its face through. Also, the monster is basically black. It doesn't look like there's any discernible markings. There's like an armor on there, but it doesn't. There's no color on it, outside of when the face kind of the teeth come out and then you've, you know, you've got this like alien, this alien monster. It's very ugly and it's a killing machine. So in that sense and what it's done, uh, the damage to the planet is, is pretty scary. But for me, yeah, I don't find it scary to look at though. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. I was, I think you just, you just really pulled that thought out of my head for it, me. It, it looks not... like a cool monster from a video game or something, yeah, but not yeah, exactly. one that, and even when you get people like, you know, they're more effective at the beginning when you you don't get a good look at it. You know, like we say this in a lot of horror movies, the more they just give you give you little previews, little peeps of it. And when we do see it, there is a moment I'm like, oh, cool. But then after that, I'm kind of like, oh, it's kind of a CGI amalgamation of all these things I've seen before. Yeah, no, I, I've, I agree. I wish we would just like one of the scarier elements was when that possum was coming through, you know, after they had the lamp, right? <laughs> I was really that's like scared that little for that possum. possum. Was like, and that, that hand that comes out, right? That was like, it reminded me of just that hand comes out. That one made me, me of, laugh though, because they splatted the possum. They made it look like a, it got hit by a car. All right, Rob, just, you know, we're just, uh, we want to finish up here, but what do you, what were your thoughts on, you know, I talk a little bit about the music, but you brought up the point of you know about some of the some of the sound effects of the monsters we think to anaconda now we're talking about this monster in a quiet place what did you think about the way the monster sounded yeah um it's interesting to me that this movie is so much about sound 
and then the monster has he, he's like a kind of like the way we talked about it, how he looks how it looks um to me it's it's an amalgamation of a bunch of hollywood um horror movie tropes all rolled together i actually find it slightly disappointing i mean i hear the predator I hear the Velociraptor from Jurassic Park. I hear yeah, like, like that. Yeah. Like that, yeah. And then even the roars and even there was a couple other examples that just, it was like, oh, it, it's almost like they borrowed from other movies and laid it in. And considering how much attention they paid to sound, it almost disappointed me that the monster was just a... Um, kind of the cool things we've heard other monster sounds make. That's a good point, yeah. Because I was like, oh, man, I thought they'd try to go make something more original for themselves, like own yeah. your own monster sound. They took things I already knew. Okay, that's exactly it, man. It's Jurassic Park, right? What was the budget on this? Oh, they had money. <laughs> they had some great sound designers working on this. So anyway, this monster sort of was like that to me. It just felt like, oh, you're using all the tricks of another movie's trade and like, why well, wish they'd come up with something else, you know? Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see how where they take the second movie, right? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, did you watch the trailer? Um, I I did. I don't want it to be just uh, like a battle. I I would love I would love them to move off the farm somewhere. I would. Well, they love do. They were, you can see they, in the trailer. They they definitely they go yeah, somewhere. I, yeah, it would be. You know what I mean? If so, I want them to explore the idea of transit and perhaps even expanding the cast. And they we'll do that see. too. You can see yeah. on the IMDb they've expanded it. Plus, you can, yeah. there's more people in the trailer we haven't seen before. Yeah, so so I'm excited for that, and this will come out just uh, to coincide with that. So I think it'll be great for for the listeners. Jamie, before we get to the rating of this film, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, School Coach. School Coach is an online tutoring company that helps you learn in today's modern learning environment. Which Jamie, you and I both know in this pandemic has been at home. And uh, I think a lot of people out there are probably looking for a little extra help considering, you know, uh, virtual learning <laughs> depends where you stand. I don't know. I got little kids who do not like it, but um, there's people out there who need a little extra help. And this is a great way to do it because, you know, these are guys who are actually spending their time learning how to teach the best they can in a digital environment. Yeah. At School Coach, uh, they have teachers and instructors that are online experts. They do it every day day in day out uh, they offer a wide variety of services from online private tutoring to group tutoring uh, to educational um, consulting so if parents have questions about uh, you know testing or if there's questions about um, you know different things that will apply to what the student might be going through in school uh, then they're more than equipped to answer all those things and they've got a lot of good reviews um, they are the elementary uh, educational experts, so they are focused on grades four to grade nine. So they mostly spend their time with their online tutoring for nine-year-olds all the way up to your first or second year of high school. So don't let uh, online schooling become a horror show for you. Contact School Coach at their website, schoolcoach.school, and you can receive a 25% discount on your first four sessions if you pop in the promo code Running Scared. Thanks to School Coach for sponsoring this week. Thanks, School Coach. Hey, 
we have a special segment on this show that we call True Horror, where we ask ourselves, could this happen in real life? Well, Jamie, we've picked a hard one for that because this is more of a conceptual horror movie. However, there are instances where sound is all the killer needs. October 19th, 1980. Rosemary Cox, a legally blind woman who had been in a relationship with William Haddon for three to four years, is angry. She knows something's up. So when he's late to pick her up to do an errand, she decides to go over to his house. She slowly walks up to the door and with her acute hearing, she hears a woman inside. She knocks on the door, walks away, and eventually her boyfriend comes out. An argument ensues and by using the sound of his voice for her aim, she shoots him multiple times, killing him. All right, Rob, do you want to head over and finish off with our rating for A Quiet Place? Absolutely. On the Running Scared podcast, we, of course, use a special rating system based on five steps being a great movie, five steps ahead of the killer. But one step would mean you're about to get killed because you made a stinker. So, Jamie, I picked this movie and I picked it partly because of how much I had to deal with sound. I thought that'd be really interesting for you. So I want you to go first. What do you think of this movie? I really like this film. In fact, I, I really I really love this movie. The, the, you know, the running time came in at an hour and 23, 24 minutes. And for me, it just went by really quickly. We just talked about this for close to two hours. And that's one of the things that I really like about any kind of film, especially horror and thriller films, is that ones that make me think and ones that just have themes and ideas that I can really grasp and, 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 and get into. And I love the idea of silence I, I love the construct of the family, and I really like the setting. I like the pacing of the movie. I didn't find it overly scary, um, but I also absolutely loved and connected to a lot of the themes, especially the ideas of parenting and with, with having my own family. And I thought the performances were, were really strong. Um, for me, especially uh, Emily Blunt's character, her facial expressions were really good. I just, I just really liked the movie, and I'm glad that 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 we reviewed it. I'm glad that we talked about it. Are we really reviewers, or are we just talking about movies and just kind of enjoying them for what they are? You know, I think that's kind of that's that's what I really like about it. And if we can get in a couple of laughs, it was really good. For me, I'm going to give this movie. Four and a half footsteps. Ooh, damn, that's a good review. That's a good, uh, that's a high praise. I, I just really liked it because for me, it's not just a horror movie. It's a mm. whole lot more. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Jamie, I'm going to join you on that and give this one four and a half steps. Yeah. Hit of the same. Nice. Yeah, it's, a, it's, um, 
it to me is a strong film, never mind what genre it is. It is a hybrid of genres. I think the performances are brilliant. I think there's some exceptional acting in this and it's acting. This is like an actor's movie, right? Like they are, they have to do things without speaking (laughs) and they have to make it all coherent and they have to make it, you know, strong and, and, and interesting to watch. And I think there's just so much thought put into this movie in terms of the like set direction, the way that there's all those little visual cues in the scripting about all the things they had to do to convey information without sound. Um, I just think it's really, really, really well done. So yeah, I'm going to join you on that. Yeah. Just, just to close off, what's, when's the last time you watched a movie that could, that could give you a genuine scare, but could also in the same movie make you shed a genuine tear? (laughs) (laughs) What a line. That's great. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Four and a half half steps. Listen, thanks for everybody for listening to uh, episode... This is episode five. Episode five of Quiet Place, the Running Scared podcast. Send us any comments, questions, or if you just want to talk to us for whatever reason at therunningscaredpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at runningscaredpd or find us on Instagram at runningscaredpod. The Running Scared Podcast is written, produced by Robert Lendrum and Jamie Roberts. Edited by Robert Lendrum. Original music by Jamie Roberts. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Five stars would be nice. And see you next time on Running Scared. Scared.